0: Hi everyone, uh, welcome to Useful Idiots. Colin just gonna uh, give us a few moments waiting for Aaron Mate to join. I'm Katie Halper. I'm one of the uh, co-hosts of Useful Idiots, which is, in case you don't know, you probably do, but in case you're just a Colin person and you don't, uh, you're not a Useful Idiots person. Useful Idiots is a show that is on YouTube and wherever you find your podcast. We also have a Substack. You can find us at uh, Useful Make sure you check out our latest episode, which is with uh, Branko Marchatich. It's a very informative interview and very informative chat where Branko talks about uh, the coup that happened in Ukraine in uh, 2014 and how that created the context uh, in which we are now living. Um, You can become members at uh, UsefulIdiots.Substack.com. And uh, you'll get uh, bonus uh, interviews, extended interviews. So we have an extended interview with Branko for this week. We talked to him about Epstein. We talked to him more about Russia, Ukraine. Aaron and I talk about Vouch and his little Twitter beef with Vouch. Um, and also, I don't usually do this, but I do want to tell people that last night on the Katie Albert show, we did a pretty great stream with Chris Hedges and Phyllis Benes uh, about, uh, Russia, Ukraine. And you can find that full, uh, interview at patreon.com slash the Katie helper show. Something else that I really encourage people to do. And again, I don't usually do this, but I think this is, these are such important times that, uh, if you want to check out a really good interview that I did with Yasha Levine, that's at patreon.com slash the Katie helper show and Yasha Levine is a Soviet American immigrant. Uh, and he talks about Russia, Ukraine, being a Soviet American with a lot of connections in both countries. His wife is Russian, um, his family, uh, his family and friends in both countries. And um, uh, that's it. And he talks about the Azov Battalion, the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion. Okay. And Aaron is in. So I'm going to, I'm going to make Aaron uh, a moderator. And uh, Aaron, if you're here, please unmute yourself.
1: My bad. I'm here. Can you hear me?
0: Yes. Can you hear me?
1: Yes, I can.
0: Awesome. And thank you guys so much for coming to this, uh, this call-in. We do this every Monday at 11 a.m. right after our Monday morning live stream, which is at 10 a.m. All times are EST, uh, as you can tell from my accent. But Aaron, uh, what do you want to do? Should we just take the first callers, or do you want to yeah. say anything? Or
1: Well, you know, I saw one super chat. That I that was directed at me that we didn't answer during the show, so let me yeah. answer it now, if that's okay.
0: Yeah. So from but, Bill, I believe. Is it, yeah. And, and yeah. what did he
1: say? It was like, um, what made you so dismissive of the U.S. intel? Is that what he said? Oh,
0: I didn't see that one. Um, no. But yeah, sure. A lot of let's just let's just let's just talk about that because that's obviously you know both of us spent a lot of time talking about that um, beforehand. So uh, what did make you so dismissive? You and I was as well, but. Take
1: it away, Aaron. Okay, well, I first want to clarify what my actual views were, because as happens with me often, they've been distorted. I never dismissed the possibility of a Russian invasion, and I never said it wouldn't happen. The first article I wrote about it, the whole point of it was to say that there's a very real threat of what I call the full-blown war. And I said the way to avoid that is for the Biden administration to, in Ukraine, abandon the guiding principles of hegemony and war profiteering. So abandon this effort to use Ukraine as basically a proxy in a uh, war against Russia to stop using Ukrainians as cannon fodder and give up this insane bid to bring Ukraine into a hostile military alliance on Russia's borders, which Russia has repeatedly warned is a red line. So that was my position. In terms of the intelligence that was being said to claim that Russia was about to attack the reason I was skeptical of it was because, mainly because Ukraine was so not on board. They kept saying that they did not think a Russian invasion was imminent, that they hadn't seen the intelligence to uh, establish it, that Russia hadn't even uh, established combat formations that could come in. And European officials also were skeptical, too, that there was leaks to The Washington Post and other places with European officials complaining that the U.S. has not been sharing the intelligence that supposedly makes them so confident. So that plus just uh, years and years and years of U.S. intelligence scams, whether it's uh, the Russian bounties, whether it's Russia Gate, whether it's Iraq WMDs, whether it's Gaddafi is handing out Viagra to his troops to commit mass rape in Libya, and we're not going to overthrow Gaddafi. We're just trying to do a no-fly zone in Benghazi, all of which were lies. That was the basis for me being skeptical. And certainly on Twitter and on Useful Idiots, I think I I spent too much time being skeptical and not enough time entertaining the very real possibility of a war. And I'm sorry for that part, but in terms of what my actual position was, it was never to dismiss the possibility of a war. It was in fact fact to warn that a war was quite possible. And the best way to avoid it would be to take Russian concerns seriously which were not about expanding the Soviet empire and any other kind of insane claims that are made to try to explain it away, but were, I think, legitimate Russian security concerns. And by the way, this was the position, this was once a mainstream position. George Kennan, eminent U.S. diplomat, Robert McNamara, in in the late 1990s, they all warned that expanding NATO to Russia's borders would lead to war and would be insane. And uh, it's been on, throughout this eight-year war, it's been very, very clear that this was a possibility that one day Russia would react, and finally it has, and now here we are.
0: Another thing I would critical of this and evidence to be presented, and as we remember that Ned Price, Matt Lee exchange them at their word, and the other thing is that you know there's this the the fact that Putin did was necessarily always going to happen. We still don't know. And it doesn't mean that the response from the United States didn't uh, create those conditions.
1: Yeah, well, that's what makes this all the more criminal. If Biden was so confident that Russia was going to, right. and he then chose to essentially use Ukraine as cannon fodder. To Russia made very clear demands. They right. published an entire document in December laying out what their demands were, which included no NATO expansion to Ukraine and uh, moving out offensive weapons from uh, from former Soviet states and ensuring that no offensive weapons could, would go into Ukraine that could attack Russia. But Biden essentially dismissed those and said, well, we're only going to negotiate on, on minor issues such as uh, possibly, uh, you know, like the placement of missiles and inspections, which was fine, but it knew what Russia's core demands were and it knew the conditions under which Russia would not attack and it chose to actually ignore them. And for what? So it could keep on the table this idea of a hypothetical possibility of Ukraine one day joining a hostile military alliance that is only in itself incredibly dangerous. It's, it's criminal, I think, what Biden did, all the more so if the intelligence he had actually was concrete and actually was real. Right.
0: Very important so let's, point.
1: Let's take uh, the first call. Rich, you're up.
0: Rich, uh, unmute yourself, please, by hitting the microphone at the bottom of your screen. How do you do? Rich? You see there's a microphone uh, icon at the bottom of your screen? You have to click that. Okay, great, we see you and hear you now. Great. Hi, Rich. What's your question? Rich? Uh, I don't hear anything. Do you uh hear anything, Aaron? Okay, he's, he's gone. Rudy. Unmute yourself, please, Rudy.
2: Hey, can you hear me? Hey, yeah. Hey, so I wanted to uh, just mention a couple of things. Uh, one is a solution for the United States. If we were to maybe... Not have NATO in charge of the um, the negotiations that might help if we were really good faith about this, we could allow Cuba, for example, and nobody would suspect that Cuba is going to side with the United States. Um, the second thing was is that I pay attention to soccer right and I've noticed that there's a lot of people that are talking about having um Russian teams and the Russian national team be banned from participating in sporting events and this is something that's never happened or rather we've never asked the United States to be banned for the thing in Iraq and England and all of that and so what I'm thinking is there's an information warfare that's happening and the United States really is winning right um, I see that there's a lot of protests in in um, in uh, Russia and so I'm not really sure that the Russians are doing well, you know, and so it to me, it looks like the u s is intending to win this by um winning the information warfare and not really negotiating in good faith, and we're just sort of looking to- uh, to ignore um dealing with what what the legitimate concerns that the Russians have. We're basically just gonna win by turning everybody against them by turning FIFA against them by turning um, a lot of like media, and it's you got boxers who are now gonna join the army, and everybody's celebrating it. All all of my friends who don't pay attention to politics at all are in favor of um, um, Ukraine, and they don't really care at all for the uh, the people in Russia that were being bombed by the Ukrainian forces. And it's not because they're bad people, but because there's absolutely no. I mean, obviously, the, the media is a problem, but you guys get what I'm saying, right? This, do you guys see what I'm saying?
0: Yes. I hear you loud and clear. I think you're making great points. I think the sports stuff is, is scary and hypocritical. Um, yeah.
2: I do. Uh, the, Where are you yeah. from,
0: Rudy? Can I ask? Because you, you mentioned you follow uh, football.
2: Yeah, so I, I was actually born in, um, in Senegal at... Um, oh. My name's not actually Rudy. My name is Sam. I just Rudy's uh, oh. Rudy Garcia is one of my favorite soccer coaches ever, so I put him. But yeah, so um, I used to be a I used to be a big Obama um, Obama supporter, and then Aaron and um, what's it called? The Real News Network and and Democracy Now sort of ruled it for me, and then sorry, but. So, It's alright Oh my goodness I argued with a guy when I was in Spain About Obamacare And the guy even like Started to cry That that was how much of an Obama fan I was But then like Bernie came And then I saw that they were doing all these horrible things And Libya really woke me up as, As an African You know, so like It just didn't make sense Because the Democrats were supposed to be the good guys And all of these things But then Obama was keeping the Bush guys. It, it just wasn't clicking and then I started to listen more to and then I heard Aaron basically demolish this guy about Russia and it was just too I couldn't go back.
1: Well hey, I'm happy to have uh, been of assistance. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so thank you for calling in. Thank you. We appreciate yeah. it. A long, thank you oh, we're going to keep it moving. Brian, you are up.
3: Yes, uh, thanks for uh, hosting this uh, call in uh, Aaron and Katie. Uh, I guess what has alarmed me in this whole situation is that the fact that I see so many leftist commentators embracing policies that are militaristic, like arming Ukraine. They want to send more arms to Ukraine. They want more sanctions. They supported the cutoff of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Now we hear leftist commentators supporting NATO. Uh, When just a few, even a few weeks ago, these leftist commentators were saying all of those things were bad and were escalating this crisis. So I guess my question is, what can we do to try to wake up not uh, uh, the the liberals are gone we're, we're not going to get back to democrats or the liberals or the moderates but i'm talking about people who self-identify as leftists who use the term "shitlib," who do not like liberals but they are echoing the liberal line they are falling in line with all of the hawkish rhetoric what do we do to try to wake them up to try to say hey no that's that's wrong you're 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 on the side of the, the people that have supported all the terrible policies that have been embraced by the U.S. over the past few decades. Take, take a second. Wake up. Don't, don't be in a rush to, to go on board with everything that, that's going on right now. How do we get back at least the, the leftist coalition that we had pr- even a few weeks ago? I'm, I'm just dumbfounded that, that so many people jumped on board with this, uh, all, all of this, this rhetoric. Well,
1: I think the substantive point to make, at least the ones that I try to make, are that this war did not start this last week. Putin massively escalated it. And I think, again, as I said on the show, I think what he's doing is illegal. But the war did not start with him. He didn't start this crisis. It began in 2014 when the U.S. backed a coup and selected the new Ukrainian government that very much was trying to get Ukraine into NATO, and essentially itself launched a war on the Russian-speaking population, who then took up arms to fight back. And the U.S. has been pumping billions of dollars into Ukraine to attack those Russian-speaking Ukrainian citizens. That's when the war started, and that's what's happened. And most people don't know that, uh, because we're not allowed to acknowledge the civilians of the Donbass who, who, uh, who have been shelled by U.S.-made weapons for the last eight years, and where the vast majority of civilian casualties by the way have occurred that's according to u n figures at least in in recent years when they're when they're available since two thousand and eighteen people don't know that because we're, all, we're not allowed to acknowledge them they're what Chomsky and Herman called unworthy victims and so I think you have to try to educate people about that and then just ask ask, ask people do is this a cause that you want to risk world war over uh, the Uh, the cause of ensuring that Ukraine can possibly join a hostile military alliance on Russia's borders and a cause that only benefits arms manufacturers and it will lead to a higher Pentagon budget, so possibly even more cuts to social spending. All the priorities that leftists care about at home are antithetical to the policy of arming Ukraine to the teeth and, by the way, supporting neo-Nazis in the process because that is a major part of the Ukrainian armed forces, not necessarily in huge numbers, but in terms of their influence and power, it's a, it is a major part. And that's why there was once a congressional measure imposed by John Conyers to ban assistance to the Azov battalion. But we all know how these things go, where those things can easily be ignored. So look, you just got to be respectful of people and try to make as as many truthful points as you, as you can, but it's difficult.
0: Aaron, it's not just, uh, it 's not just that the Azov battalion they just like wound up in their hands Did, didn 't they actually undo that? reverse that um, conyer 's thing
1: well it 's officially locked, but the problem is as the u s found out in Syria, once the weapons actually get there it 's so easy for them to fall into anybody 's hands right and and the in, the The influence of the Azov battalion was underscored a few weeks ago when Richard Engel of NBC News and we covered this on, on the right. show katie when he he participated in a media stunt put on by the Azov Battalion which speaks to their key role inside the Ukrainian armed forces when they're the ones who are escorting dumb journalists to do media propaganda. Right. So, um yeah, it, it's so Brian look it's there are no easy answers it's just we live in a we live in a heavily propagandized society.
3: That's a great that's response. It's a great response, Aaron. Uh, at least uh, after 9-11, we had Barbara Lee in Congress uh, stand up and vote against the authorization. I see no members of Congress who are willing to take a, uh, a counter uh, narrative this time. So it's even more uh, disheartening. But uh, I'll let other callers get on. Thanks again for uh, hosting this call. in. I also,
0: think, I also would just add that I think something we need to do is you can, you can empathize with and support Ukrainians as a people. Um, and lament what is happening without saying, and this is, I think, a hard needle for some people to thread, but that, that doesn't mean that you support arming them. I think we have to do some more education on that, actually, Aaron, uh, because I just I think that's something that's hard for people to get and how this actually harms Ukraine Ukrainians, arming them. It seems counterintuitive to some people, but it's the truth.
1: Uh, yeah, especially since, look, even if you... No matter how you feel about Putin and Russia, just like think about it tactically. Right. Russia is on Ukraine's borders. They have one of the world's most sophisticated armies. They have nuclear weapons. Ukraine is not going to win an armed conflict with Russia. So the uh, this idea of just sending more weapons there, putting aside the politics behind it, it's just sentencing more Ukrainians to die.
0: Right. Yeah. That's so, what it is.
1: Okay. 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 So. Bill.
0: I'm put, I'm going to call on Bill because Bill had a question for us uh, during the show. That we okay.
3: Made.
0: So Bill, unmute yourself. Welcome to Colin. 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 Hi, Bill. Can you hear me? Yes.
4: Okay. Yeah. So thing. I think I kind of already heard Aaron kind of answer the question. I think it was adequate as far as him explaining about how he didn't, he believed it was sort of propaganda, maybe a hoax, maybe not something that was going to happen. And, uh, you know, is just a misjudgment. I think Matt said something similar on Katie's show last week, and that's all fair and good. <clears throat> I I would like to. I have a friend, a work friend that that's from the Donbass. You know, I work for a, a software company. He uh, he uh, came here several years ago, back in the 90s. Um, he's very much been educating me about all of the things that you've been saying, and from his perspective, and. I, uh, most of it I agree with. I definitely agree that, uh, uh, that, um, obviously the U S interfered U S that's kind of the U S being the U S that's what we do. We interfere and, uh, we are the superpower and we go around stepping on people and that doesn't justify it. It doesn't, um, it doesn't excuse it. Uh, you know, the whole, um, the, I kind of feel like, um, the day before the president left, uh, during the Euro Maiden protests, uh, he signed an agreement. He signed an agreement that there would be a new election. And the next day, he fled. Um, he was a very corrupt guy. He was stealing a lot of money. I think he thought he was going to get caught for that. <clears throat> he was kind of a jerk. <laughs> you he know, was a, obviously. Wait, but wait, yeah.
1: wait, wait. He was a very yeah. corrupt guy. There's no doubt about that. He was incredible. he was insanely corrupt. And the aspects of the Maidon movement that were against his corruption, I think, were very legitimate. The problem is the Maidon got co-opted and turned into a violent regime change operation. And look, well, like, it, that's but wait, where you've got to provide wait, wait, some
4: wait. proof, Aaron. You've got to provide some proof. You can't just say that. You're, you're a journalist. If you can provide proof that it was co opted by the CIA and that, you know, there was a false flag shooting or whatever, which is what my friend believes. Well, God, okay. I would love this, okay. I would so, to so see the, some evidence of okay. that.
1: All right. So look, if you want if you want evidence when it comes to the Maidan massacre, uh, there is a political a Ukrainian political scientist at the University of Ottawa named Ivan Kachinovsky. And I'll post an article he wrote at the, at the show notes for this episode where he goes through all the he goes through all the forensic evidence. He speaks to witnesses. And it's so clear that the Maidan shootings, not that the Ukrainian government did not kill people. Of course, they did. But in, in this specific massacre which was the inciting event which helped lead to Yanukovych's ouster, that that was perpetrated by, the, by people on the, on the Maidan opposition side. And that makes sense because there are people, the people who co-opted the protests, I'm not saying it's the CIA. It was far-right Ukrainian fascists. They were the muscle who took over mm-hmm. the protests and turned it into something that it did not begin as. They turned it into a regime change operation. There's even a leaked phone call uh, with some EU officials and I'll link to Sorry, that. No, too. I know about that. Yes. Okay, so there you go. So you're asking me for evidence, so you, so you know the evidence well, already. I know about that. I know about, that. I know I about the second, call. One second. I, one, second okay. so one second. And then in terms of the U.S. role, I cannot prove a CIA role yet. But what often what often happens is we only find out the truth, you know, 50 years later. Like in the case of right. Iran. Okay, but you're, see, saying, you're saying on a a fact. Second, you're saying it's a second. On a second, okay. on a second. Right. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Yeah. In the case of Iran in the 1953 coup. When the U.S. and Britain overthrew a nationalist who had the crazy idea to use Iran's oil for the Iranian people and not Western oil companies, we only got documents released a few years ago showing just the expensive yeah. U.S. So hold on a second. What we do know is this: There's a phone call with Victoria Newland and the U.S. Right. ambassador Jeffrey Piat, where that was intercepted by either Russian or Ukrainian intelligence. It mm-hmm. was released a few weeks before Yanukovych was forced to flee. And in the mm-hmm. call, they are picking who the next Ukrainian government is going to be. And they're right, talking no, about... I'm familiar with... Hold on a second. And they're okay. talk, I, I'm talking for people who aren't familiar with it then. Okay. And they're talking about uh, why certain people need to stay out of government. And one of them happens to be one of the far-right fascist leaders... And they say no, he can't go in because he needs to be on the street. They basically need his muscle on the street, and it's not oh, going to look good if it's not going to look good if we install a far right fascist. So there is plenty of evidence for a, a U.S. role in that coup. And in terms of why Yanukovych fled, why would he flee after signing an agreement uh, to hold new elections? The reason why he fled is because after he signed that agreement, the Ukrainian opposition went back to their to the to their people in Maidan Square to the far right uh, uh, factions. And the far right were like, what the hell are you doing signing an agreement with him? We don't want new elections. He has to go. And that's when violence ensued. And that's when that massacre happened. And that's when Yanukovych, uh, fearing for his life, fled. So there absolutely was a violent coup. It doesn't justify Russia invading now. But that background is critical to understanding that this war did not begin this last week. It began back in 2014 when the U.S. backed a violent coup, chose a new leadership, and then those same people burnt <laughs> Russian speakers alive in Odessa. Look it up if you don't know you're,
4: it. You're filibustering a little bit. Can I ask another question? Sure. So the, the point is. Well, you asked for evidence.
1: You asked for evidence. So. Oh, yeah. No, I, I appreciate think, that
4: well, in there. Well, and I will. You asked for
0: evidence. And Aaron is also. And to be fair, this is, you know, we have like 220 people calling in right now, which is great. So Aaron. No,
4: okay. I'll, I'll, I'll let you go. Um, okay, the only other.
0: Finding context for everyone listening.
4: Yeah, yeah, so let me let me just say one ask one more question or say one more statement. So obviously the Newland call is embarrassing and wrong. It's obviously something but when you say that we pick, we do that with every country. That's what we do. We pick we pick the leaders whenever we can. But we don't but that doesn't mean that, you know, the, the it's definitive that the Ukrainian, gov- Ukrainian government would obvi- would do exactly what we told them to do. We were trying to get them, we were influencing them to get people, you know, it was all strategy. It was, you know, typically what we do is try to get the leaders who we think are going to be most efficient to rule the country in our benefit.
0: Beneficial towards the United States. I mean, I think.
4: Yeah, beneficial to the United States. That's what we do. It's called the geopolitics. I mean, that's, it's, you know, it's not right. It's, it's not justified and it's embarrassing to tell. But it isn't. Does not mean it was a coup. I, I just say the word. Okay. Coup. Okay. So
1: th- that's the issue. So you're fine to say that this is what we do all the time. So somehow it's okay. You no, were I'm taking saying it's yeah, a hold coup. Hold on a second. Okay. Hold yeah. on. You were taking issue with me calling it a coup. Yes. The fact we do it all the time doesn't mean that it's not a coup. A coup is a coup. A coup is when a a government is overthrown and a new government is installed. And in this case, you're saying it's embarrassing. It's bad. But it doesn't mean that the that Ukrainians actually uh, followed U.S. orders. Let me play for you a clip from the call. It's, it's 20 seconds.
5: I think Yats is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He's he's the guy, you know, what he needs is Kleech and Tani Book on the outside. He needs to be talking to them four times a week. You know, I, I, I just think Kleech going in, he's going to be at that level working for Yatsenyuk. It's just not going to work. Yeah, no, I think that's, I
1: think that's right. Okay. I'm going to play the beginning one more time too cuz I want you to hear this one line.
5: I think Yats is the guy
1: who's got So, when she says I think Yats is the guy, she's talking to uh, she's talking about Yatsnyuk. Guess who became Bill the Prime Minister of Ukraine a few weeks after that call? Yatsnyuk. So, if you want to listen to that and think yeah, that so oh then- it, it it doesn't mean that that doesn't mean okay, well I don't know what to tell you. Call, a if there was okay. a phone call of of, uh, of 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 Sergei Lavrov and the Russian ambassador to Mexico picking the next prime minister of Mexico two weeks before a coup and then after that coup the guy they picked became the prime minister I'd probably think that they had a role in it and if you don't want to think that that's fine but that to me is pretty damning evidence and I just like we found out every single time whether it's Iran or Guatemala, go around the world, the
4: key U.S. role in coups. I think the U.S. had a pretty key yeah. US, uh, role here, too. But do you think the election that came afterwards was, was legal and fair and square? Because they've elected, they've had another election. Do you believe the Ukrainian government isn't the, the duly elected government of Ukraine? The Ukrainian government is the duly elected government of
1: Ukraine, but it's taken place in the context. Of a large parts of the country being cut off. So, for example, the Donbass did not take part in those elections. Uh, Crimea obviously didn't take part in those elections because Russia yeah. took Crimea. And, and again, they take part in the context of the U.S. playing a role in Ukraine that they have we no right to play. About-
4: they if we, have, we want to uh, talk about history, we can talk about the Orange Revolution. We can talk about, you know, how that election was stolen. We can talk about the poisoning of the of the candidate for. Yes,
1: we also could talk about the U.S. spending five billion dollars in Ukraine to fund the opposition, as Victoria Newland bragged. So you we, you want
4: we to, funded sir. we funded the we funded uh, Yeltsin. Uh, yes, we know. did. Yes, <laughs> we, we funded did. Yeltsin in the nineties. We, y- we yes, we and, Yeltsin was, Yeltsin and Yeltsin
1: was and Yeltsin. Like like a good obedient lackey, destroyed Russia just as U.S. Yeah. planners wanted. I don't well, grant that, the U.S. I, the right that, to do that.
4: I don't grant the US that, right to do
1: that. If, yeah, if we can you end the call plan. on
4: something. We can end the call on something we agree with, which I do agree that that was horribly wrong, and it was very, it was the stupidest thing we've ever done, uh, is to try to isolate Russia instead of trying to get them back. You know, basically, basically doing a Marshall Plan. Russia is what we should have done in the nineties. Um, you know, there's a great video on YouTube from Vladimir Posner from a few years ago where he explains, you know, it's just, it's not in our, it wasn't in our best interest to isolate Russia and to treat them like, a, you know, Hey, this is, this is our opportunity to step on them. Um, we should have brought them into the world community. We should have done a Marshall plan for them. I agree with you completely. That was a huge mistake. And we're um, still trying to do that in Ukraine today. It
1: had it didn't stop with Yeltsin.
4: It keeps I'm going. Up with the, I'm up to the point where Putin invaded. I agree with you. Okay. Bill, sure. That's uh, that. That. great. You great. Right, the, thank you.
0: Did you hear our inter- our episode with uh, Bronco this week? Yeah, I did. Cool. All
4: right. Just make sure. All
0: right.
1: Thanks. All right, thank you,
4: Bill. Thank you,
0: Bill. Bye. Thank you. All, All right. right. Unmute yourself, please. Hi.
6: Hi. Hi. Yeah, uh, first, congratulations. The show is great. Uh, my English is far from perfect, so I hope you understand me. Uh, sure. I, I wasn't going to talk about it, but uh, maybe I can say something about the coup out of experience. Uh, I'm, I'm from Argentina, and sometimes the thing that he's trained from Donbass, he I, uh, assures that it wasn't a coup. Uh, sometimes they they started by the people and they are co-opted by the opposition, the U.S. or whoever. And and then it's hard to see where there's... In this case, in the case of Ukraine, it's very obvious that it it ended up being the U.S. But for us in 2001, uh, of course, the the people started... The president left in a helicopter, but the people that was trying to set on fire the presidential house was not the people that went out to protest. It was, I don't know, probably Argentinians, but uh, it was like helped. And for instance, now uh, the former president of Argentina is being judged in Bolivia because uh, we sent armaments. And Trump gave us a nice gift. He left us with the biggest loan in the history of the IMF. And we smuggled. They they sent arms to the coup a few days before the coup in Bolivia. So some of them, they are orchestrated. It was, the, the one in Bolivia was started by a foreign. It wasn't started by us because we disarmed uh, defounded the, the military. The last time we had the, after the last coup was there. There's no money for us to buy all the things we send. And well, no, nothing. That in the in the influence. Uh, well, we also sent guns to Croatia and Ecuador that had nothing to do with us. And while, uh, there was another president with another problem with the IMF.
1: All right, so so thank you. So, do you have a question?
6: Uh, Yes, no, I have have a question. Yes, um, because they are trying to do two things. They are trying to, they are giving people and teaching people how to make Molotov cocktails, Molotov uh, bombs to fight the Russian army. I mean, they don't care. It breaks my heart. They don't care at all how many they die. And the second thing is, Europe is starting to look like europe because they are i don't know if you heard that they are separating the people that are ukrainians not the one that were for instance from africa and studying in ukraine or from some part of asia studying in Ukrainian. and they are, there was one man i don't know was one man that he even said that they hit you that did hit him in the border with Polon uh, yep yeah, with polonia which is horrible
1: it is terrible. It is. It is. The Ukrainians are being used as, as bullet stoppers for, a really just useless, exactly. unnecessary.
6: And one conflict. question: yeah. uh, Why now? Do you know why now? You know
1: I, it? it it it's it's hard to say. A lot of things were happening. You know, people speculate. You know, Russia was about to put online the Nord Stream two gas pipeline with yes. Germany, and this was a bit to stop that. But I.
6: You know,
1: the fact that Angela Merkel wasn't there anymore. Yep, yeah, that's a factor, hell. too. You know, it's okay. it's hard to speculate like that. But certainly, I think, um, certainly, it's been, this has been simmering for eight years. And so maybe this is just the moment when it came to a head. Again, the, the important thing to remember is that the war didn't start last week. Putin radically escalated, mm. but it, but it didn't start last no, week.
6: No, of
0: course, of course. Yeah.
6: No, no. That's-
1: All right, so thank you. Thank you, okay. Zoe, for for calling Bye. in.
0: Appreciate the international perspectives. Okay, sharing Yeah, thanks a lot. And by the way, guys, I want to encourage people. You can make highlights. I think they're called. So please make highlights from this. Uh, you can make uh, little clips from our show so we can share those on social media and here in them Okay. Next, Rena. Rena.
1: And if you're there, Rena, you have to hit the microphone button. There you go.
7: Hi, it's Rena. Rena. Uh, g- great, great to talk to both of you, Katie. I did see your show last night with Chris Hedges and uh, Phyllis Bennis. Um, I don't think I've ever seen Chris quite so down, and mm. that's saying something because he's he's normally a pretty sober guy. But his concern about this whole oh let's and the previous caller mentioned this too about the Molotov, you know, Oh, let's, let's teach Ukrainian grandmas how to, how to shoot Kalashnikovs or AK 47s or whatever it is. And, Oh, and while we're at it, let's teach them how to make Molotov cocktails. He was, he was just, his commentary about that was just devastating about how it's just going to lead to slaughter of civilians. Um, I don't normally hear your, your Monday morning show live because normally I'm not up that early, but for some reason I was today and, uh, you know, great, great show. Um, I don't really have a question. I just want to compliment both of you and um, it's great to talk to you and thank you for doing call-ins. I think that, I think this is a wonderful format.
1: Thank you. Thank you. We really appreciate that. Thank
0: you, yeah, Chris Andrew, by the way, last night was very sobering. And part of it is because he's covered wars as a journalist. So his making the point that arming people in this way is really dangerous, uh, especially when they obviously can't be effective, uh, was very sobering and worth listening to.
8: Hello. Uh, to add on to that, some of the real things that are happening right now, uh, at least in Kiev, they're offering Convicts that have combat experience, the chance to get out of jail and fight. They're train. They've conscripted all men, eighteen to sixty. There's people that are being forced to fight, and a lot of this is uh, glorified because this is the kind of details people don't hear about. Um, two things. First, sanctions. Sanctions are going to hurt the poor the most, and not just in Russia. When fertilizer uh, gets sanctioned, food prices go up everywhere. You know, um, this is one of the things I wonder why the left doesn't consider these kinds of things all of a sudden when it it comes to this situation. And then secondly, going back to the point about what's going on with the conflict, the I think the U.S. role largely in this is that we over we we helped overdevelop the confidence of Zelensky in Ukraine in what we would actually do and what they could defend against and what Russia would actually do. And um, this this is the kind of thing where it makes me go, well, what if this kind of thing happened in Poland? Are we all really willing to die in a nuclear war over Poland? And it's like we're even still saying that we need to do things like send them jets. And it's just like this escalation. Um, We're not going to save Ukraine, but we're willing to profit off of it. But then uh, when the red line gets pushed somewhere else, I I guess I'm trying to say the U.S. needs to stop being so ambiguous. It would have been better if Ukraine would have just been told that you know we're not going to support you militarily, and you're going to lose this fight. So I'd like to hear what you guys think.
0: Well, that wasn't good for the arms,
7: right?
1: Katie, sorry, you cut out a little bit.
0: The arms industry for them to do that. Can you?
1: Yeah, no. Look, yeah. it's it's um it's it's just been obvious that the U.S. was never going to defend Ukraine from the eventual Russian attack that it was stoking. I mean, that's what happens when you, when you send billions of dollars worth of weapons to Ukraine for eight years, when you say, and I'll I'll play the clip again, I played it on the Useful Idiots uh, broadcast today, but I'll I'll play the clip of Adam Schiff again because he, he lays lays out exactly what the U S is doing, has been using Ukraine for, for the last eight years.
4: The United States aids Ukraine and her people so that we can fight Russia over there and we don't have to fight Russia here. The United States aids Ukraine and her people so that we can fight Russia over there and we don't have to fight Russia here.
1: So if you're not only using Ukraine to fight Russia over there, don't be surprised when Russia fights back. That's just what's happened. And, And the... The tragedy for Ukraine is that no matter what the U.S. does, Ukraine will not be able to uh, defeat Russia because Russia just has overwhelming military power um, because Russia is there. If the U.S. shared a border with Ukraine, if Ukraine was in between the U.S. and Russia, it would be different, but it's not. But we pretend as if somehow using Ukraine to fight Russia Somehow prevents Russia from invading the U.S. That's literally what Adam Schiff says. He says, "We fight Russia over there and Ukraine so that we don't fight Russia over here. It's insane. And so Ukrainians are being sacrificed to be bullet stoppers, to be a repository for the U.S. weapons industry and for the cold War fantasies of Hawks in Washington. It's just um, it's, it's, it's insane. I you know I, I don't know what else to say about it beyond just its, it's insanity.
8: Thank you. Uh, One last point. The people that are calling for no fly zones, especially Congress people, need to be uh, not just mocked but taken seriously because they're basically saying that they would uh, be happy to see a mushroom cloud outside the window if it meant that they had a no fly zone over Ukraine. And uh, people, I guess, grew up in my generation not in the Cold War. And I guess, you know, we haven't had like above ground nuclear tests. It just seems like people don't take this stuff seriously because they don't have any concept of it. It's really. Yeah. All right, we have a lot of calls, so we need to actually try to move quicker.
1: So I'm gonna ask everyone to keep your questions as short as possible, just so we can get to everybody and be as fair as we can. Okay, Ivana, you are up.
9: Hi, uh, I really appreciate what you guys are doing. Um, and uh, you're you're really one of the few voices of, of reason in, uh, in US media, so I, I really wanna thank you. And I appreciate you a lot um i want to say that um i don't think people in in the united states understand how this is affecting already affecting like all of europe um just the refugee you know crisis is going to in, inflame a lot of right-wing sentiment in all of the other countries like if you remember when um refugees were flooding in through you know through the balkans there was i mean <laughs> the the amount of like vitriol that was coming from people, like people were basically calling like in Slovenia, for example, were calling for, you know, like to bring back, uh, you know, um, um, gas chambers and stuff like that. It was, it was horrible. And, um, uh, and these were, you know, these were just thousands of, of refugees. Meanwhile, uh, I think the Slovenian government just authorized like 200,000, you know, uh, to to take uh, 200,000 refugees, which is like basically 10% of the country's population. So these are very like serious consequences that, um, you know, are going to destabilize like all of Europe, not just Ukraine, Russia and stuff like that. And meanwhile, also, you know, regular people have money in in Russian banks like Sparebank and so on. So like now that... Uh, sanctions are being imposed people aren't able to pay their bills you know um in in other countries that is so i'm just i I really want to ask you guys like i hear a lot about you know how how big of a movement there was um during you know um leading up to the iraq war and like how how you know big of an an anti-war sentiment there was and i'm just wondering whether that was just due to the fact that George Bush was president and people were just like against him here. Uh, And, and how much was it genuine? Because I, I always feel like whenever there's some kind of conflict, people are always instinctively just going to be team America or world police,
1: no matter like how much damage that's going to do around the world. So thank you. Um, I'm going to blame two factors and obviously I'm sure there are more, but these factors reflect my own personal biases and interests. The first thing I'm going to blame is Barack Obama. I think Mm -hmm. Barack Obama killed the anti-war movement because he was the person who put an end to the Bush era. And then at that point, the takeaway was, all right, Bush is gone. We all can go home. And Mm -hmm. Obama is this uh, erudite constitutional scholar who's going to follow the law. And so we're not going to have aberrations like the Iraq war anymore. That was what the Bush gang did. And then, of course, Barack Obama gave us Libya and he gave us the dirty war in Syria, and he gave us Saudi mass murder in Yemen, but all those were done differently. Libya was done with uh, this claim that we're just going to have a no-fly zone in this one part of the country, Benghazi, Benghazi, and then what do you know? It just turned into a massive regime change war. Now we have, you know, ISIS inside Libya, slave markets, the country's divided. But oh, oops, like we didn't mean to do that. It wasn't like Iraq WMDs, and then Syria too. It was uh, even more insidious because. Instead of a direct war for regime change, the U.S. instead spent, sent billions of dollars worth of weapons into sectarian death squads and asked them to do the fighting, gave them anti-tank weapons, helped al-Qaeda take over Idlib, where it now has a massive province of control right mm-hmm. now. It, Al-Qaeda literally controls Idlib thanks to U.S. weapons. And so,
9: I would like to say something about that because I, I don't think people also understand what, what it means when when the US funds and arms these like very, very extreme factions of, you know, some country, which is, you know, like trying to free itself from whatever oppression they they feel they're under. um, You know, like this is these are the forces that then become the police. They're the forces that become the military and the, the, the rightward shift is very extreme in every one of these countries. Um, And so all these liberals who think they're going to have like freedom and democracy and like LGBT rights, like, forget it. Like that's not going to happen in Slovenia, which is where I'm from. The, the first thing that happened after, after independence is they erased like up to 25,000 people from the registry of permanent residents. And this is like an act of uh, ethnic cleansing that has gone unpunished. And this was done by, like a democratic, liberal, whatever, government. Um, and then, of course, like, you know, de- two decades later, it's been used as a, a political hot potato for, you know, for the right wing to basically destroy the liberal
1: yeah. part of and same politics. Thing, and so same, thing in, same thing in Ukraine where this supposed mm-hmm. democratic revolution mm-hmm. ushered in a U.S. And, uh, chosen government that then banned the Russian language and had fascist, burning Russian speakers alive. And uh, same thing in Syria, too, when the U.S. was claiming they were arming moderate rebels. Meanwhile, Mm -hmm. privately, we know now, thanks to declassified emails, Jake Sullivan was writing Hillary Clinton saying, quote, Al-Qaeda is on our side in Syria. And the Defense Intelligence Agency also was writing memos warning that the prime engine of the insurgency was what became ISIS and Al-Qaeda. So, look, uh, that's always the playbook. And the second thing, just on top of blaming Obama, for the the um erasure, for for the erasure of the anti-war movement is RussiaGate. RussiaGate normalized this playbook where to be considered woke and liberal and to oppose Trump, you have to worship the CIA and deem anything that resembles diplomacy with Russia or taking Russian concerns seriously that is deemed to be disinformation and an attack on U.S. democracy. It sort of made that Cold War chauvinist attitude synonymous with being a liberal in the U.S. And it's been really, really effective to the point where Trump got impeached uh, over pausing some weapons sales to Ukraine. And the allegation was that he used it for political benefit. But the other allegation was that he was somehow uh, impeding our noble effort to, as Adam Schiff put it, fight Russia mm-hmm. over there. And liberals cheered that. And so that set the stage for using Ukraine yes, as cannon fodder. I, and, yeah, I and, think you have to take. Now.
9: Yeah, thank you for that. And I think you have to take an even larger step back and just look at uh, the humanitarian, you know, in square quotes, uh, interventions yeah. that started in in Yugoslavia. I think right. that was the yeah. the first the first instance where you took uh, these, you know, like well-meaning liberal sensibilities. Uh, and turn them again, like into war propaganda, basically. Right. Ivana, um, thank
1: you. We're going to move yeah, on to thank
9: next. Thank you. So. Thank you so much. One more I thing I on.
0: would just add to this question. I mean, there's the the anti-war movement writ large. I think you addressed, Aaron, and you attribute it to Obama and Russia again. Those are definitely two major factors. And, of course, in this case, it's not having, you know, no one's fearing boots on the ground there. So Americans don't care about that aspect.
10: Absolutely not. Yep. Absolutely not. yeah.
0: I or Al?
10: Sorry, Al? Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of yours. Now, um, And I'm sorry, I'm going to show like a little different perspective. Can I do that? Um, yes. Aaron, <laughs> can, you, can, can you be nice to me, Aaron, please? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Hey, okay. Yes, I can. All right. So I, first of all, I'd just like to thank you guys. And, and first of all, I'd like to say that I totally agree everything you said, Aaron, about uh, the U.S. side. I mean, it's something I've been following since the start of the Syrian war and stuff like that. So totally on board with everything you're saying. Um, but I'd like to perhaps show, uh, share a different perspective. Um, you know, there's, there, the way I understand the situation right now, there's like four components. There's the U.S. component, which you described extremely well. There's NATO, which is a separate issue. Then there's the Eastern European component. And then there's Russia, okay? Now, let's look at the Houston European, because that's where my family's from. There's 100 million people, over 100 million people. And I don't think we should be dictating what they're saying. I know I've said, I've said that before. But okay, I we can I talk, Aaron,
1: okay, please? But, but if you want to have the same argument we had on a previous... I'm, remembering okay, now, I'm not going to w- have the same argument.
10: I'm not going to have the same argument. But I'm just saying, because you, you also you know, yesterday you said that Poland shouldn't, uh you know, have joined NATO. That's wrong. You can't dictate. I'll tell you, NATO. No, another... Hold on. I didn't even say that. You I said that I think, yesterday. Oh, hold
1: on I heard you. I think it's insane. I think it's insane to expand NATO. And I, I think it's dangerous. But, but no, I'm not going to dictate uh to Poland. That's already done. Okay, done. OK,
10: but let, me, let me just finish. Let me just finish the, the point. The point is that NATO serves a different perspective. It also serves as a, um, it prevents war in, within the NATO countries, you know, like in Europe. They've been fighting for thousands of years. And like the EU, it kind of, you know, moderates that, those sentiments within European countries, which were at each other's throats till recently. Right. But, but it does okay, allow but, for
1: war okay. to be waged. It does allow for war to be waged on anyone who's outside NATO. Hence why Yugoslavia was, was torn apart. I agree. I and, agree. Hence why I agree. Libya, and hence why I agree. Libya is I now, agree. Is I now agree. in ruins. I agree.
10: I agree with these points. I agree with these points. Now, with, with my final question to you is, like, you know, the fact that the U.S. does that does not mean that Russia is totally blameless in this situation. Now, did you read an article called On the Historical Unity of Russians and Ukrainians? Did you read that article?
1: Are you talking about Putin's article?
10: Yeah. Did yes, you read I did. Yes. Okay. So that's one of the reasons why they're invading right now Ukrainian, because it's not it's not NATO. It's the notion that Ukrainians don't exist. It's the Russians. Okay, okay.
1: This okay. <laughs> okay. This, listen, okay. 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 You've made your point. The problem with that argument is, if I think if Putin that really was a factor for, for Putin, why didn't he invade Ukraine a long time ago, there's been a peace process. In Ukraine, there's been accords on the books reached between the Ukrainian government and the rebels. It's called Minsk II. Russia publicly supported it. They kept asking Kiev I, to implement it. They, it calls for autonomy for the Donbas. No, it I know that. For so, and Putin didn't invade. Then Putin didn't didn't even use his air force. Even as Russian-speaking Ukrainians were getting shelled with U.S. weapons, I think Russia has tried to wait out to see if there ever was going to be diplomacy. It's pretty clear that the U.S. was not interested in diplomacy and told its client in Kiev not to implement Minsk. That's why most recently, at the most recent talks on implementing Minsk, Kiev announced they wouldn't even negotiate with the rebels anymore. This was just a few weeks ago. So you're forgetting that background. If you if you no, think, I'm not. I'm not. No, I'm not. You, Listen, OK, OK, respectfully. I'm, just,
10: I'm just saying that I could this be another way of looking at this issue that. Basically, this is to the advantage of Putin and the U.S. side. They're both profiting on it the same way. Okay, sure. Who gets screwed in the middle? It's exactly what you're saying. The cannon fodder is Eastern Europe here, and it's basically a Yalta. And so, what I'm going to suggest is that that in in order just attacking the the, the U.S. side, which I think should be. Put into you know everything you said is correct, but I think there also needs to be a little bit more understanding on the Russian side. And I would suggest that you go to either to a protest and spoke to Ukrainians, or go to Russia, or go to the Polish border. You're a reporter. We're counting on you guys, okay, and we need people like thank you, you thank guys you. to you. go to to thanks. to go thank to you. Ukraine and and report tip. from there. I hope you're going to do that, and, and Katie. And okay. just get some of that perspective, because Thank we you. need that. We need those independent reporters. We need people to report uh, replace the people like Fisk. And you're a young young man, and you should, you know why don't you go through the border and report from there?
1: Thanks for the advice. I Thank, appreciate thanks it. Thanks for calling, Take me. Care, man. Okay, bye bye. Seth, Seth, can you
11: yourself un-
0: by pressing the?
11: You know, honestly, I think you guys just said that. Is that me? Oh, shit.
0: What's going on, Aaron and KD? How
3: y'all doing? Hey, yeah.
11: <laughs> How's it going? Look, man, I'm just living my life. Uh, you know, you guys are having all these crazy arguments and whatnot. Skin wild. Look, I just wanted to, to ask, you know, how do you guys keep up? You know what I'm saying? I mean, this stuff is kind of depressing. You got a tough job. Like, what do you do to, like, you know it's not, not just tough, like be super
1: cynical all the time it's not a tough job no it's not a tough job no it's not a tough job no we're not we're not you know as the previous caller said there are people who actually go to these places they're on the front lines we're not on the front lines so it's not a tough job to just basically uh be on your computer and uh and write as i spent a lot of time doing that's not hard i um i got to go to syria a few months ago and see firsthand what war is really like and that's that's the tough people who live through that Mm -hmm. that's the tough part so there's there's no um you know we're good we're good
0: i have i have to talk to aaron
1: (laughs) (laughs) so seth thank you jackie we're gonna bring you in next take care hi can you hear me yes
12: hi katie hi Hi. uh just a really basic question. Can either of you recommend like an on-the-ground reporter in Ukraine right now that we can
0: all follow? Or in Russia? Uh,
1: in, uh, in Ukraine, there are people who report from the Donbas who do stuff that just gets completely ignored. Because, again, we're not allowed to hear about the victims of Ukrainian attacks on the Russian-speaking areas of the Donbass. But their names escape me. I don't remember them offhand, but I will find them, and I'll put them in the show notes. And in terms of a journalist in Russia, um, well, the let me just find his name. There's a guy named Leonid Rogozhin, and who uh, I think was formerly with the BBC, very critical of Putin, very critical of this war. I don't agree with him on on everything, but he's uh, he's very knowledgeable, and he's one of the people who I follow. So I can put a list together when I get a second and uh, of more people to follow. But he, but he's someone. He his name is um, Leonid Rogozhin. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but uh, yeah, it's um. It's hard to keep up, and it's hard to find sources who you trust. But I will, when I get a second, I'll put a list together.
12: Yeah, definitely. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Miguel. Hello.
13: Hi. Can you hear me? Hi. Hi. Uh, So my first question is uh, with regards to Trump and Putin and how it's being talked about. So. There is this piece in The Nation called uh, Trumpism is Still on the March by uh, Sasha Abramsky. I don't know if you are familiar with that writer, but essentially it goes along the lines of uh, militias are on the rise. Uh, Trump is like Hitler. Putin is like Hitler. No wonder Trump likes Putin because they're both like Hitler. And I was just wondering what you guys think is going to be the coming rhetoric, especially in 2024, around Trump and Putin and this entire crisis.
1: Well, the U.S. media is obsessed with Trump. He is the personification of all evils, and he is the uh, only reason. He's the explanation for all U.S. dysfunctions, not the fact that we're ruled by rapacious oligarchs who profit off of war and misery. And uh, so we're going to continue. It's just all all, all the same rhetoric is going to escalate. It's going to be the same thing. Putin is the new Hitler. Trump is his enabler. We have to stand up to fascism by... Sending more weapons to fascists in Ukraine and giving more money to the Pentagon—that's going to be, that's going to be the uh, playbook. Is Thank
0: that you. Uh,
11: yeah. Yep.
0: Okay. I concur. I concur. <laughs> and we saw that today when we were playing. What was it? Tom Cotton on uh, uh, Stephanopoulos.
1: That's right. That's right. John, you're up.
11: John, if you're there, there's a microphone button. Okay. There you go. Yeah, all right. Um, yeah, just a real quick question. Um, I, I agree with everything you're saying about how, you know, our involvement in this and how the war started and basically the, our kickoff for it was in 2014. But now that Russia has invaded, do you not believe that we should try to help the um, Ukrainians fight this war? That they're in? I mean, their country was invaded. So don't we have some sort of rights to help them?
1: Well, I think you can take that position only if you ignore that, as I've been saying, the war actually began eight years ago with a coup. And when the US chose the new Ukrainian government, and then that set off a war inside Ukraine in which at least 15,000 people have already died. And the U.S. has already been sending weapons to Ukraine to fight the rebels who've been resisting the coup government and resisting basically an effort to stamp out Russian identity from inside Ukraine. So, if you forget all of that and you just look at this as the events that happened this week, and there's no background, there's no effort to expand NATO to Russia's borders to place uh, weapons that could hit Moscow around Russia. If you ignore all that, sure. But unfortunately, I. I can't. And in the context of the U.S., in my view, being the aggressor going back many years in a bid to encircle Russia with weapons and enemies, in that context, Russia is finally fighting back with the fight that the U.S. launched a while ago. I mean, that's just that's just the reality. So it's um, to me, the, the position you outline can only be taken if you ignore the uh-huh. recent history.
11: Yeah, I, yeah, I, I get that. i Senate. Um, awesome. One more, real uh, yeah. quick, is what do you? Th- why do you think we're doing this to Russia? I mean, other than the whole Russia Gate thing, why do we hate Russia? So why is our government so against Russia doing anything?
1: The U.S. is a hegemon, and hegemons will want to destroy anyone who is a, who is a deterrent to their hegemony. It's the same way as why Israel is obsessed with Iran. Israel wants to basically have Iran wiped out is because Iran is a deterrent to Israeli hegemony and to U.S. hegemony, because Iran can fight back and it can support resistance groups like uh, Hezbollah. And so that's why Iran has been a target of U.S. regime change for so long. And so Russia is no different. Russia has, it has nuclear weapons. It's very powerful. It's a huge country, has a lot of natural resources. And so in a world that is dominated by one single hegemon, it's going to do whatever it can to weaken and destroy any possible deterrence. And that's why US out a US enemies constantly shift, but the through line is always who is the latest deterrent to
11: hegemony that needs to be taken out. Yeah I get that. I just think China's worse, but Well China's a China is
1: going to be next, I'm sure, on the US it, so. it, it, it already is really. But the problem is China is also a huge is an even bigger power than Russia, at least e- economically. And also, China is a lot more integrated economically uh, into the U.S. system than Russia is. I mean, there are corp- a number of U.S. corporations that have chosen to, to go to China and to spend a lot of money there. And so it makes it more difficult
11: to confront them. But rest assured, the U.S. will find a way. I guarantee it. <laughs> okay. Guarantee it. And That's what I meant with. I didn't mean worse than a, a bigger head, you know, bigger. Yeah. Uh,
0: right that
1: way. I got you. Right. Thanks. John. Thank
0: you. Thank
11: you
1: you.
0: Oh. That Aaron, I mean, Aaron, your, your points are both well taken, obviously. But in addition to that, it almost doesn't matter what you think of Putin, what you think of the United States, who you think, whose fault you think this conflict is. If you want to help Ukrainians, arming them just won't do that. Which, again, sounds counterintuitive, but as you've outlined, uh, and people who look at just wh- how weapons works, <laughs> all you're doing is creating more bloodshed. Phyllis Bennis said every war ends in, um, with negotiation and diplomacy. So the only question is how much bloodshed before that point. So I think that's something really important to both bear in mind and also explain to people. Because even if people hate Putin, even if people don't think that what the United States did is bad, even if they don't care about NATO, if they just care about protecting the lives of Ukrainians, they should oppose the arming Ukraine.
1: To see them call for, for arming the Houthis to fight Saudi Arabia, but of course nobody will ever do that.
0: Say that again?
1: I'd love to see them call for arming Yemenis uh, right. to, to fight Saudi Arabia, but of course yeah, no one will ever
0: Yeah, you care about, yeah, uh, disproportionate warfare, yeah. Asymmetrical warfare, I mean, yeah. Nima.
14: Hi, guys. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Well, first of all, thank you for taking my call and, and a special uh, thank you or, or or tip of the hat to Aaron for his incredible patience with with the hypocrisy he's been faced in just in this room which I've had to listen to and because I certainly lack that patience. but I digress um, My point is simply this to build on your what you said about barack obama and and his election. When you look historically, the last one hundred and twenty years, every international crisis of this magnitude where we're talking nuclear warfare bar it has been when a liberal is a, in, in, is the occupant of the White House. Is it not time for the left and the west, the socialist left and the west, to understand that despite that on the ideological scale, the liberals are closer to us than the conservatives, that that does not necessarily mean that these people are closer to us as in being our allies. And as such, is it not time to completely throw them out of our movement and build a socialist left movement in the West instead of rehashing the same debates that we keep doing every four years where voting for for the lesser of two evils, et cetera, et cetera?
1: Well, look, many friends of mine like Jimmy Dore certainly share your point of view I um I haven't taken a position on that. I've I used to argue against your point of view. Now I'm turning into more agnostic because part of the problem is if if you if there's, you know, if you help basically Republicans win, which is what essentially not voting for Democrats means. It means you're helping it means you're helping someone like Trump or whatever, Cotton or Pompeo come into power. I'm not going to be the one who suffers the brunt of that. You know, like the far right, their agenda is being even more hostile to working people than Democrats are. And Democrats are already pretty hostile to working people. Trump's only achievement was cutting, was passing the biggest upward transfer of wealth in U.S. history. And for all the talk he gave on the campaign trail of being anti-intervention and he criticized the war in Libya. Maybe he believed it, but when he came into office, it didn't matter. He didn't, he doesn't make decisions. He listened to his neocon cabinet and was just as radically dangerous as everybody else. It's true he didn't start a war, but he tried to with Iran when he killed Qasem Soleimani. So I just, yes, the record of liberals in power is terrible. Someone like Obama, you could very plausibly argue, is more dangerous than someone like John McCain because, They have the same policies, but Obama looks like he's like, you know, cool and into peace. So I I get that. But whether that translates to helping Republicans win, I I just don't know if I can go there. At at least I can't go there yet.
0: Sorry, sorry, I interrupted you, Aaron, but don't hang up Nima because I have a follow up for you. Keep going, Aaron. Aaron, I cut you off at the end. What was your final? No,
1: no, no, no. I was I was I was done.
0: Well, I just want to know, are you asking about an electoral strategy? Is that your question? What that would look like?
14: Sorry, uh, you cut off there, Katie. I didn't hear your question. Can
0: you hear me now? Can you hear me now?
14: Yeah, I can hear you
15: now.
0: Were you asking about an electoral strategy? I'm not sure what the thing that you're talking about would look like. Like you're talking about building a socialist movement that leaves libs behind. But what do you Um, mean?
14: I mean, but I don't mean just a political electoral strategy. I'm talking about a grassroots movement across across the West uh, on wo- built around working class, working people issues, and understanding that un- un- building that around certain um, principles that are not up for debate, that are not up for for to basically not up to not up for to be Bernie Sanders' Or AOC, if you know what I mean. Because what we've seen from them is that it was all talk. When it mattered, they even voted for the for the dome in Israel, which where they were so opposed. I mean, this is what I mean. I think it's dangerous because it, it looks to people. That that we're gaslighting them, especially the working class, that we're gaslighting them, whilst Republicans come across as being honest, even though their policies are way worse and more detrimental to those working classes. People vote with their gut many times. And before we have a working class that is educated and class-aware... I think maybe it is time to de- to detach yourself from them and say no we are not liberals this is what we believe we believe in this this and this and this is not up for any kind of um uh, we're not selling out on our principles D- does that make sense
0: yeah I, I get what that means in terms of uh, uh, I'm always i'm i never sh- i'm always i guess um overwhelmed and um challenged by what that would really mean I hear what you're saying, and I'm not sure what I think the answer is to it. I think that I kind of tend towards doing both ends, like in more of an inside-outside strategy. And I just feel like we have to both meet people where they're at without selling out. Um, and that different people have different roles to play. But I just feel like we're so weak on the left that we need to make it a, as big a move as possible. And then there are times when we have to just do our own thing if we can hmm. partnerships. I mean, I think on the electoral question, I think what is true is that one of the downsides of an Obama uh is that you see, you know, Trump one of the upsides was there was so much kind of opposition. The problem was the opposition was all channeled into Russia gate. So it was pretty ineffective, pointless opposition, but you could see from Trump how people were aware uh of someone bad in power. Um Another example is with Bush versus with Obama. So the downside to having someone who's more, you know, quote unquote, progressive, although we all know Obama isn't that. But there definitely is a downside to to that is that the uh, the opposition is is either non-existent or or very muted. Uh,
14: I just feel that it's, it becomes an, an exercise in futility or beating a dead horse. If we constantly build coalitions with people who vehemently disagree with us on the most fundamental issues, then you end up having what you see in, um, in, 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 in all you see in the UK, for example, with Keir Starmer. So Keir Starmer becoming yep. some sort of... You know, Nima, Nima good...
1: listen. I, I'm very sympathetic to your argument, especially the way they destroyed Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. How could we possibly ever support these people? I, exactly. I totally hear you. I, I think yeah. you've left us with a lot to think about, and yeah. and okay. that that will be a, a question to Thanks. keep discussing. It really yeah. is the parent. It really is a paramount issue for the left it is it. to decide yeah. what to what to do with these people who keep selling us out and uh, while pretending to be progressives. It's um, it's a very very tough issue, and but it's just yeah. it's it's complicated for. For sure. The reasons that I, I tried to lay out. So yeah. thank you for calling in.
14: Thank you. thank Constance.
1: And then we're going to have to wrap in 15 minutes. Yeah, so keep... So going. For, everyone, for everyone who we don't get to today, we apologize in, in advance, and we hope you will come back next time. So Constance, go ahead.
12: Hi, guys. Can you hear me? Hi. Hey. Yeah. Love you guys. <laughs> hey. Nice. A lot of people actually have asked or kind of... Um, Said the uh, similar things I had question about but I do want you to um, comment on one thing with the way things are going right now uh, with European Union completely together against Russia um, Canada same thing America of course so there's a joint like almost like a countries, big powers against Russia right now. And we are funding. Finland is funding, um, Switzerland is now saying that they're going to also start funding Ukraine. How, what do you guys see happening here? I mean, I don't see anybody looking for peace here. Is this going to be another forever war now? I mean, that's what seems like it's going to be a base in Ukraine we're going to be fighting, like, in Syria?
1: Well, yeah. The Look, if Russia is rational, if their leaders are rational, then they, they'll they'll know that the aim of their opponents is to bog them down in, in in an insurgency like there was one in Afghanistan for the Soviets. And the question is, are the Russians um, able to avoid that? For the sake of everybody, I hope so, because the longer they're there, the more people will die. But it's it's hard to make predictions. You know, the war still, it's only a few days in, so it's very hard to see how it will go.
12: Yeah, it's been a few days, but I have never seen such a force joined together against any country, even with Iraq. They took their time. With this, it seems like they are just all in, like it's already been planned. I mean, that's what my kind of feeling is right now. That's what I see happening. Um The other thing I was going to comment on one of your callers said that they don't see um, that there was a coup in Ukraine. I mean, there is so much evidence about it. I mean, you can go and even see Yevhan Karasas, the C-14 um, leader of the of the far-right in Ukraine, he gave a whole speech about it that because of us, we took, we, we took over Ukraine's, you know, we, you know, we had the power over it. Yes, and Are do you, you want to know pro-
1: what else he said? Do you want to know what else he said? So he said that we were 90 I don't remember.
12: We were like, na- Exactly. I'll tell you. Yeah. We uh-huh.
1: were 90%. He said we were 90% of the effectiveness, we being the neo-Nazis, were 90% of the effectiveness of the Maidan. And he also said without us, Maidan would have been a gay pride parade.
12: Right. I mean, yeah, that's That's just one piece of it, Aaron. I mean, there is so much evidence. There is also the prime minister of um, Romania or Slovakia talking to another um, president or premier of another country in EU and they were Blatantly, like expressing their opinion. Exactly what it, what happened in Maidan in terms of there was only one side that that was snipers who were shooting both sides, the people who were protesting and the people who were against it. So there's too much evidence to even doubt that yeah. we played a huge part in it. so Absolutely.
1: Well, Constance, yeah. thank you. I want to keep moving because we want to get to as many people yep, as we yep, can. Thank but you. Thank I you appreciate. So
12: much. Your, appreciate-
1: Appreciate you. Thank you. All right. Next caller.
15: Uh, Hi there, guys. Hi. Uh, Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Hi. Uh, Thank you for doing this. Uh, I think this is very important. Um, So I just want to start by uh, contesting really quickly, contesting this notion that uh, the U.S. started the war eight years ago as opposed to Russia, so um, yes, I mean, there was an overthrow of the government, as you're saying, but there were also elections that were held, democratic elections that were held right after, during that same year, where people went and voted for the new government. and. Um, the, uh, the idea that the aggression here started with, with NATO. I think, again, it's a little misleading because Ukraine, even, you know, during the coup or, well, as you call it a coup, we can, you know, agree that it was overthrow of the government or, you know, a revolution, however you want to call it. But during that time and after the new government came into place before Russia annexed Crimea, Um, the government wasn't seriously talking about joining NATO. It was really after Russian aggression in Crimea. Well, it annexing the Crimea and also, um, starting to fund separatists in eastern Ukraine. It was after that, that Ukraine realized that it needed a powerful friend. And I think, I don't think we can really blame them for that. Um, so this, just this notion that, this last eight years, it was just, you know, U.S. started the, the occupation or created, you know, a vassal state in Ukraine. And, uh, it's just Russia is now fighting back. I think it's very sort of, it, 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 um, ignores the power dynamic in that country. Yeah. You have people who are in Ukrainian government who are, I'm sure, you know, uh, very, you know, have pro Western ties and really want to be part of NATO. But there is a reason they want to be part of NATO. And a, a big reason is that Russia has is a huge aggressor in their country. And it's it really shows its true face right now. Um, so, OK, I I'll without. Yeah, go ahead. OK, no, no,
1: go ahead. Go ahead.
15: No, I just wanted to ask the question uh, because, I mean, I know we have little time. Like in terms of the the. Um, the NATO expansion going forward. Like, yeah, I agree with you. NATO had ambitions and it was aggressive towards Russia. But don't you think that Russian actions will only lead to its further expansion? Like, don't you think that NATO right now and the West is so much more unified in its response to Russia and Russia really had much more better options and alternatives that first would let it achieve its geopolitical aims, including deterring NATO, And also wouldn't put so many people at risk in Ukraine and lead to this illegal invasion. Thank you.
1: Okay, well, on the question of whether Russia had other options, that's something that I've argued from the start. Ever since Russia invaded last week, I said that even though I understand the background and I don't believe the war started with Russia's invasion, I do think that Russia's invasion was illegal and that they had other options to pursue. Many things that they could have done aside from using force. So we agree there. In terms of the background, um, I don't think we have time to debate it all today. I don't ag- agree quite with your rendering of history. I'll just say that the the people who were involved in the coup in 2014 uh, were talking about joining NATO. I think that was a major reason why the U.S. was supporting them and why the U.S. helped install them. And elections that take place after that uh, and in the context of by that point, there are attacks on Russian-speaking people. The Russian language is being banned. The, the part of the country that does not want to join NATO, they were being attacked. I understand there are Ukrainians who very much want to join NATO. Uh, I'm, I've you, never you, you denied so that. The, 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 my, my whole argument, though, is that it's insane to make a country where, by the way, in 2012, you know what support for joining NATO was? It was 20%. And there was a paper, and I'm writing about this now, there was a paper from a former official on the National Security Council who pointed out that the main obstacle inside Ukraine for membership to NATO is, in his words, Ukrainian public opinion itself. So it was only the dream of a, a small group of people, and those people happened to be the ones who were behind the coup in 2014. And that is why well, I what think... Do you,
15: what do you think the support is now after Russia invaded? And, I think it's... And, def- and-
1: I, I, I think, I'm think i sure it's definitely grown. I'm sure it's definitely grown. And, and I, I do you know, think it yeah. was
15: primarily because of people who were, uh, as you say, overthrew the government in 2014 or because of the annexation of Crimea and further escalation by Russia? What do you think was the impact uh, – what, what do you think impacted it more?
1: I, I'm sure in response to – look, I, I definitely know that since 2014, support for joining NATO – has increased in Ukraine than it was in previous years. I do acknowledge that. That's according to the polls that I've seen. So that's a, a fair point. But it's like, look, um, inside Venezuela, I met a lot of people who previously supported the government but don't anymore, simply because U.S. sanctions were destroying their lives and they were they were sick of it. And they wanted to just like be able to access basic goods again. So if... You accept the premise, or at least my premise, that the U.S. has played a, uh, uh, a completely uh, unlawful and immoral role inside Ukraine, which is pouring in billions of dollars and fomenting coups. Then, yeah, even if people start to shift their opinions in the direction of what the U.S. wants, it doesn't to me mean that it's like the legitimate will of the Ukrainian people. It means that it was done under the threat of a gun in, it, in, in the context of coercion. So it's a bit more complicated than the question of increased support for NATO inside Ukraine is, to me, more complicated than the one that you lay out.
15: Fair enough. Uh, We can't agree to disagree.
1: Okay. All right, Masha. And thank you for the call.
5: Um, Hi, hi. Uh, So I'm a Yugoslav born woman to Croatian mom and Serbian dad. So that's already an impossibility in the Western imagination insofar as anyone even remembers the Balkan Wars. And I grew up in a kind of intelligentsia household where the non-aligned movement was a topic of daily conversation. And now all of those nations are falling in step behind the hegemons. So it's devastating to me on every level to see fraternal wars Obviously, I know that viscerally uh, always only benefit shadowy overlords. Um, So uh, my question is, with Russia kicked out of SWIFT and looking to China to create an alternative system, is this globalization in reverse? Do you see do you see Russia going the way of Yugoslavia being dismembered and, and like neutralized? Do you see it going the way of Greece being brought to its knees, you know financially and and ruled over by technocrats? Like where what's the end game here? I'm not seeing it, you know? That's
1: a great question. It's just it's hard for me to make predictions. Certainly, Russia is going to be severed from the financial system, and I don't see that being reversed. And what happens after that i don 't know it's it 's hard for me to predict like that
5: okay I want to say to Americans that are listening that that have jumped in here repeatedly that want to help this is how you can help first of all, God save us from Western help as Slavs I can tell you that right now yeah. like uh, so if you want to help i'll I'll take a page from Guevara and say, "Stay at home, democratize <laughs> your own country." Shore up whatever is left of that democracy and look to your own state sovereignty. Please do not help us.
0: Oh, thanks, Thank Someone sent to a highlight. We got to clip that. Sure. <laughs> Thank
5: you. Thanks,
1: Thank you, Marsha. Max.
13: Hi, can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. I can hear you. Hi. Yeah, so um, I've been watching... Um, Crystal and Saga for like a year now, like while they, from when they were still at the Hill, and um, I really love their stuff on like the majority of issues, but they they've seemed to have gone pretty, pretty they've diverted quite significantly on this issue, um, gone kind of full State Department. I mean, they're they're obviously acknowledging like Western culpability, um, getting us to this point, but they've they've been saying things like this is a hundred percent Putin's fault, and my question is just kind of. Why do you think they've departed, or they're departing so starkly from their their common takes, which are usually pretty skeptical of, um, whatever state department when it comes to things like war on terror, Russia Gate, and things like that? Like, what what do you think the motivation is? Like, you know, they're trying to look like, avoid looking like apologists, or well, look, I don't want to,
1: I don't want to uh, speculate on anyone, on anyone's motivations. The question is, are are journalists being factual or not, and You know, I don't know. Look, uh, uh, Russia propaganda in the U.S. is incredibly powerful. And it takes a lot of time and research to try to get a better understanding of the real facts because they're just being denied constantly. And um, so if someone like them are getting it wrong, it's just, I think, because they haven't done the research that needs to be done. But it's very, very easy, especially in times of war, to drink the Kool-Aid. There's every incentive to drinking the Kool-Aid. And there's no incentive to thinking critically. I mean, I, I can say that from, from firsthand experience. But um, I learned that, especially during Russia Gate, which is, really was the dumbest thing ever that I can think of in U.S. politics. It was so stupid, the idea that Trump is a Russian agent. And for dissenting from that, you know, people tried to end my career and say that I would never work in this town again, things like that, and attack me constantly and call me a Russian puppet. So if that level of vitriol can be directed at someone who descends from the party line on the something so dumb as a conspiracy theory, it's going to happen when war breaks out and confronting Russia, using Ukraine as a proxy in this hegemonic war against Russia is a top priority of the bipartisan foreign policy establishment. And so there's every incentive, even if you're on the progressive left or whatever to play along, because if you don't, you're going to be called names and you're going to not going to be invited onto, you know, uh, uh, big platforms. I mean, all the usual incentives and disincentives apply. So I don't want to say that that's what's guiding Crystal and Sagar here, because, I, again, I, I haven't even seen what they've done except for a, a clip. So I don't want to weigh in on, on their coverage. But that's just, that's just the playbook. And, look, a better example to me is Democracy Now!, which to me is like was once the I, – I worked there for 10 years and it was like the model – for adversarial journalism and in the last many years on so many issues like Russia gate Syria and now Ukraine they're sounding exactly like the establishment media that they used to challenge so it's just it's just an unfortunate trend and it's not so much corruption it's just the power of manufacturing consent that the there's a there's a mechanism established where if you dissent from the party line there's red lines and if you cross a red line you'll be outcasted and you'll be you'll be smeared and you'll, you won't you will be allowed to take part in, quote unquote, respectable discourse. And I, I just think that's the, if I had to speculate on what drives people to drink the Kool-Aid, I think that's the main factor.
0: I uh, would you- just, I mean, I think there are different things. Like we've been talking about, something I keep repeating is how hard it is for people to grasp that army Ukraine is not good for Ukrainians. So I think there are different things that happen. I think some people are drinking Kool-Aid or, or maybe are saying things to remain within the, what's permissible speech but i also think that in other cases it's just complicated or there're certain things that are things that are questions of interpretation right so like saying that it's more putin's fault than america something that's i would disagree with people who said it's all putin's fault but that's not a factual thing per se anyway thank you
1: thank you okay let's take one more caller rich
0: Rich
3: can you- good, good morning. Yeah, can you good
7: morning.
3: I appreciate you both. I have a couple of questions. I'll just ask one. Um, the caller before uh, the last um, Aaron, you said that uh you felt that uh Russia was going to be um, separated from the SWIFT the SWIFT system uh, permanently. Can you say more about that and um, I followed different people who uh, had indicated that Russia uh, may be uh, creating other uh, mechanisms that they could trade with outside of SWIFT. And do you think Russia is autonomous enough to survive economically? Well, that's the question.
1: That's the question. Did Putin and his cabinet, did they properly plan for this? Did they take the steps they need to insulate Russia from the pain that is going to come their way? They're going to face a lot of pain, so it would have taken a lot of maneuvering. And obviously, you have to assume they have China's backing. But will that be enough? I don't know. It's, that's not my wheelhouse to say. So I, I wish I could tell you more, but I'm just not an expert in, in, in that realm. All right, thank you
0: we should also talk about uh, we'll talk about this hopefully on the show this week but Aaron something we should talk about the European uh, Union uh, is banning RT yeah
1: of course in the name of uh, defending democracy they're right. banning free speech yeah. of course
0: of they're course. so liberal and open such an open yeah. society yeah so yeah. that's another thing that we can talk about and uh, yeah and marking all these people who work at RT personal media twitter accounts as as state media yeah Yeah. anyway well should we wrap
1: yeah everybody thank you so much for tuning in we really really appreciate you spending the time with us we'll be back with useful idiots on friday with our interview episode and then back next monday for monday morning and back here on colin to do the same thing
0: yeah, so make sure you subscribe to us uh, wherever you listen to your podcast. Rate and review us, Throw us a nice uh, review, drop us some stars, help us beat things like The Lincoln Project and Positive America or else you let the terrorists win. Uh, also, uh, uh, subscribe to our Substack stack, usefulidiots.substack.com. Uh, you get our podcasts and video episodes every Friday. Then you get us live Monday mornings at... Um, 10 a.m. on YouTube and then uh, 11 a.m. here on Colin. Uh, also, just uh, I'm doing a uh, State of the Union on the Katie Halper Show. Uh, you can watch the State of the Union live uh, Tuesday night at 9 p.m. EST. Uh, YouTube.com, watch the Katie Halper Show. Aaron can't be there. else This would have been with him, too.
2: All
1: right. Well, thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and we will see you next time.
0: See you next time. Bye, everyone.
1: Bye, everybody.
5: And okay. And the room.